Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Where uh, Jesus, or Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, where Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so the experience that these folks, these men and women had back in the early 1900s, this experience they had with the Holy Spirit, they connected it to Acts chapter 2 and said, we need to go into the world and preach the gospel. And so um, today, 110-ish years after that happened, 105 years after that experience, um, as we sit here this morning, there are just, just under 70 million believers in Assemblies of God churches in 196 countries and just under 2,700 missionaries that we are sending currently all over our country and all over our world. Echo as a church, a big part of what we believe in is giving financial support to help continue to spread the gospel beyond the community where we live in. We invest heavily in this community, heavily in our county, heavily in our city, but we also are connected to what God's doing all over the world. So uh, two years ago when we became a sovereign church, we started by supporting three missionaries. We've grown through your giving, we've grown to 13. And so throughout this month, each week, we're going to give you just a little update from a couple of our missionary families. Some of them will come in the forms of Zoom interviews that we edited down that Havila conducted with some of our missionaries. And uh, Occasionally in the form of an in-person uh, visit from a missionary family. Today, we're going to hear from uh, an interview that Javila did with one of our missionaries in the country of Ecuador. So check it out. All right. Hi, church. I'm here with Tom Davis. Uh, he and his wife, Becky, serve as AG World Missionaries in Ecuador. And uh, we're so glad to have him with us. Welcome, Tom. Oh, thank you so much. It's so good to be with you, even if it's virtually. Uh, we're always so grateful for Echo Church. Yeah, I'm so glad we get to see you face-to-face. -face. Um, it was a couple years ago that you and Becky visited Echo. That was when we were in the high school. Now we're in our yes. new building. Um, so a lot has happened in the last year for all the ministries around the world, but I'm sure for you in Ecuador. Can you tell me um, what your year has been like and what is one big win um, from the last year that you'd like to share? Well, it has been very challenging for us. Uh, many people may not know we run a TV station here and uh, we have 27 employees. We had to reduce their salary by 25%, put them to six hours uh, shifts instead of eight hours. And just because, uh, I mean, the money just dried up completely. We had no promotions, no businesses were operating, so they had no reason to advertise. So we uh, were to dep totally dependent on the donations from the, the U.S. churches. And thank God he really saw us through. God just came through in a big way. And our employees never missed a, a, a uh, salary. Uh, where in uh, right now, even our city workers haven't been paid for three months. But God has really been with us and helped us and really has unified our team because they've really come together and, uh, are really concerned for each other. We uh, had a thing, uh, it's very different here to do elections. Uh, two years ago, we had a mayoral election, and they, uh, uh, the way the government works is they provide the financing. 
so the the candidates don't have to go out and and try to raise funds so they're given the budget and then they determine how much of that budget they use for media well and all everything that went on during that election the government owed like four million dollars to all the media outlets and we we had forty two thousand dollars that we had uh, uh participated in and so there was a long process back and forth trying to say oh no we're not accepting this and back and forth so it ended up we had about thirty-one thousand, but they still wouldn't let us give them a bill so we were just very grateful but we hadn't never never saw anything my uh, staff said well if we don't see it by the end of the year we'll never see it because uh it's just not going to happen so december 31st came we didn't see it january 31st came and still haven't seen anything we've contacted them and they said well there's just no money right now so last uh, last week last monday i got a i went online to look at our bank account and there was a deposit of thirty one thousand dollars that had come in and i said wow and so i sent it to the managers and they all got excited they said this is unreal we thought this money was lost so god really helped us through by not just giving us that thirteen thousand but he gave us the full amount and so we were able to pay a lot of bills and take care of a lot of things that uh, that helped us. So that was a huge win for us. And uh, and we made sure we spent it very quickly to make sure they don't come back and try to pull it back out of our account. So it's uh, that was a, a very, very big win for us. And God's, uh, God's just shown up uh, many, many times uh, when we just were really praying, God, how are we going to make ends meet? He's just been very, very faithful. Wow, that is awesome. I hearing the provision of the Lord for your ministry because you work in media. I mean, it's even it's if it's a nonprofit, you have yes. you have bills, you have employees. Um, and that is amazing to hear that testimony of at the last minute a yes. provision of finances. Yes. That is God, awesome. That is good. Uh, what has been the biggest um, hurdle, I guess, you've been facing in Ecuador? Well, we've uh, really used this opportunity to reach out to families that are in need. Uh, we've been providing uh, food kits. We've been preparing uh, and putting five, six hundred dollars a month that we've been able to use to provide meals for people that have they either lost their job or they're having difficulty. They have a system here that they put a red flag out of on their house saying they have no food, and so we're able to put prepare these and so then our our workers we've been working with local churches to you know so they kind of vet who who the uh, food goes to and then uh we've been just seeing great things and the people are just so overwhelmed by kindness of these churches and so it's been a great opportunity for us to partner with these churches and reach out into the community and then they're able uh, also have opportunities to share Christ with them as they, they give them the food. So that's been a, a very interesting thing that we'd never planned on. And um, yeah, Thank you so much for sharing. I One of the things that we're doing um, with all of our missionaries is we are bringing back your prayer requests to our church so that we can be partnering in prayer uh, with you. What would be the one thing that you would like us to pray with you about? We just are continuing to pray for creativity. We're asking, the, you know, God created the universe. He's very creative. And so he knows, he, he was aware of the situation. So we, ask, we just keep asking him, Lord, let us be creative. 
Let us not just copy what others are doing. Let us be out in the forefront and uh, let us just, you know, go after uh, people through the media communications that we have. Um, a lot of online, our, our viewership is very high right now because a lot of people still in their homes. And so it's been a, a great opportunity for us. So we're, we're just asking God to help us to be creative in our programming, in our messages, in the things that we're sharing with people, uh, that he would just inspire us and, uh, and just be trendsetters in, in media. Yes. Amen. Amen. We will definitely be praying with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today to update us about what's happening in Ecuador. And I want you to say hello to Becky and all the team over there on our behalf. And um, we are, we're so excited to see what God is going to be doing in Ecuador this year. Great. Thank you so much, church. We appreciate your support. Let's pray for Tom and Becky right now. Heavenly father, we come into agreement with what Tom asked just for creativity. God, you are a creator. You are the creator. Everything we see sprung from your imagination. And so certainly you have the resource of creativity to supply us in order to help us come up with the ideas and the methods and the strategies to be able to leverage the gifts you've given us to advance your kingdom. We pray that over Tom and Becky. We pray that over Leah. We pray that over Ed and Miriam, the families that we support that are all working together in Cuenca, Ecuador, through uh, Uncion and, and other, uh, other evangelistic outreaches to take an entire city for your kingdom. Father, we thank you that you've been supplying and resourcing all of their needs financially. But God, I pray that even this week, that they'd be able to look back and say, man, we had one of the, one of the most uh, groundbreaking ideas we've ever had that just sort of bubbled up this very first week in May, and it just put us on a trajectory to claim new territory for your kingdom in our city. God, help us and other churches like us to be willing to go into our own budgets, into what you've equipped us, and just be able to humbly ask you, God, is there, what is it that you would have me to be able to give out of what you've entrusted me to invest in missionary families like Tom and Becky in order that your kingdom can expand all over the earth? We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be challenging, uh, I am challenging this church to double our missions giving over the next 12 months from what it's been previously. We currently support 13 missionaries and there are more missionaries that are asking us to consider their support. Um, what that looks like is that every month there is money directly withdrawn from Echo's checking account and directly deposited into their ministry account with the Assemblies of God. There's no middleman, there's no third party. It goes directly from our account to their ministry bank account. Now there's accountability with the Assemblies of God for how they use it, but they are then released to be able to use those funds right away from their budget. So if you hear you heard Tom and Becky say we're spending five or six hundred dollars a month just on buying groceries for people in Ecuador. Our church is sending them a hundred dollars a month. I would love to be able to increase that. When you think about, well, where is my money going? It's going to places like that. So our dream when we became a sovereign church, you remember two years ago, well, maybe you don't. I do as an employee. I remember we started with zero dollars in the bank. We started with zero dollars in the bank. But God has been faithful to this church because you've been faithful to the Lord, because God's been faithful to you. And our dream as a church is to be able to say we give back 10% of what comes into our church into missions and outreach. 
every year. We're not quite there yet. We're trying to get there. But uh, our goal is to be able to double what we're giving uh, into world missions over this next 12 months. This last year we gave, you gave $20,000 above and beyond your tithes and offerings. That is amazing. When you think we started at zero dollars and this church has given $20,000, my challenge, I'm going to be asking you to think about this this month through Missions Month, is what if we as a church came together and said, you know what, we're all going to do our part, whatever it is that God puts on our heart to participate in, that we're going to give to this church, and this church is going to turn and give away. We're going to distribute it to all these missionaries. The good news was that we had a little bit of a surplus this year. We actually had about $10,000 above and beyond what we had already sent out that was sitting on the sidelines that we recognized at our last board meeting. So this month I've had the fun assignment of dividing that up equally among all of our missionaries and sending them all a one-time gift. So all of them this month in their accounts, you know, they're normally used to getting our monthly support. They're getting a big chunk again from this month's church because, you know, we're not trying to present that to God on a balance sheet. We want to put that back into work in the kingdom. And so, um, Throughout this month, you're going to be hearing reports from what God's doing. So think about that. I'll be challenging you later this month to really see what God can do. If we, just to help you understand, if we would double our missions giving uh, over the next 12 months and add that to what we're already investing in outreach, that would bring us up to about 8% of our annual income that's going right back out into missions and outreach. We want to get to 10% and have that be the basement, the floor from, from here on forward, because it's not just about building what we're doing here. It's about investing in God's kingdom. So um, hearing stories from missionaries helps. I, uh, question for you. Uh, I don't know how many of you have a smartphone. I'm not trying to alienate those of you who don't. How many photos do you think you have in here? How many have you said? Did you say 11? Oh, 11,000. I thought you said 11. You are very, I was like, you've really curated your photos. I checked mine on Monday when I was working on my message. Um, and at that moment, I had 6,484 photos and 750 videos. Now, I don't know how, obviously, I'm much shorter uh, in number than some of you, and they're not all here. Some of them are in the cloud, and you have to click on it and wait for like a minute and a half, which frustrates my four-year-old when he wants to go through all the old pictures in my phone, and he clicks on it, and he waits and waits and waits for it to download. So I have like 6,500 photos and 750 videos. It would be more, except I purge mine pretty consistently. I delete the ones that don't belong there. I recently decided I want to, because the, the walls of my office are still bare. You know, I would like to put pictures on the wall before that we are too big to be in here and we have to expand. It would be nice to at least have pictures on the wall before I have to leave that office and move into something different. But I'm just speaking by faith. But I've said, you know, I have space to, you know, if I wanted to, I could fill one of these blank walls with, I did the measurement, 16 photo tiles. In other words, I could convert up to 16 of my pictures into something I could hang on the wall. How in the world do you narrow down 6,500 pictures to the 16 that are going to live on your wall? Now, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, this really stressed me out. As of today, I've converted zero pictures into photo tiles. How do you sort through an entire lifetime's collection of memories and experiences and photos to come up with any type of an accurate summary that's only 16 of them? How do you do that? What would you do if that was you? Some of you are scrapbookers. You understand. Like, how do you preserve these things? You have to be selective, 
just have to be selective. You have to come up with something that you're comfortable with to decide this picture goes on the wall, and this picture doesn't mean that it didn't happen, doesn't mean that it's not important, doesn't mean that we think any less of that moment, but this one goes on the wall, and this one just stays as a memory. That's a tough assignment. Would you agree there's probably more than one right way you could do that? Right? There's probably more than one right, right way you could do that. But you have to be selective. Now let me give you four names and you tell me what's in common about the four of them, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What do they have in common? The Gospels. Each of these men, and they're not the only men who ever wrote a gospel of Jesus. But these are the four men whose gospels have been included in the canon of Scripture for us. They've been accepted for 2,000 years as accurate. Each of these four men felt impressed by the Holy Spirit to write out a gospel, a story, a true story, a historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus while he was on the earth. Now let me connect these two ideas. You do understand, I hope, that each of those men had the same challenge that I just described. Each of these men had collected far more memories, experiences, interviews, testimonies, stories, than what they could possibly include in one readable, unified piece of literature. Each of these four men had to decide which of these things, which of these stories is going to be included in the gospel and which of these will remain as episodes in history that we don't hear about as much or interviews that didn't make the final edit or in John's case, experiences and memories from his own life that would go to the grave in his heart and his mind but would never make its way onto paper. Each one of them had to do that. They had to be selective. They couldn't be exhaustive and they couldn't be all-inclusive. They had to pick which of the 16 pictures or which of the 20 stories or which of the four miracles of everything that they saw made it into the final cut. In fact, I'm not just guessing on this. John tells us this. John chapter 21 verse 25 says this. This is John writing. He says, Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. What's he telling us? He's saying, I've seen Jesus do more things than what I'm writing in this gospel. In fact, there's so much that Jesus did that I'm not writing down that he uses hyperbole. If all of the books in the world were available, we could, they could not contain everything that Jesus did. What are you trying to drive at, Phil? I want you to know that what... God preserved for you in the Gospels is the curated but not all-inclusive history of Jesus. There's a reason why every single conversation, every single miracle, every single story that's in here made the final cut. There's a specific purpose in mind. Let's stick with John for just a second. Let's consider his Gospel. His Gospel is the most unique of the four. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of, let's say, redundancy, or there's a, there's a lot of stories that are included in all three of them. They're more similar than John. 
The statistics of his gospel, there's, we've organized them, well, Wycliffe organized them in the 13th century, into 21 chapters, 879 verses, and 19,099 words. Another difference is whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke relied heavily on interviews they conducted, eyewitness testimony that they tracked down, they sourced their content not primarily by their own personal observations, even though they lived at that time. They very, very, very carefully sourced their information by going to eyewitnesses. John, on the other hand, does not rely primarily on research when he's writing. What does he rely on? He relies on his memory and the Holy Spirit bringing to his memory his own personal, first-hand experiences with Jesus. He writes from a first-person perspective. And so he writes more from his collection of memories, less so from his collection of research. In fact, he tells us this in John chapter 21, verse 24. He tells us we can trust him. It's one verse before this one. He says, this disciple, speaking of himself, this disciple is the one who testifies of all of these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. So he tells us, whereas Luke says, what does he say in the beginning of these Gospels? This is, the, this is the record of all the eyewitness testimony that's been recorded about Jesus. So you can trust its accuracy. It's coming from the first person. John says, I'm the one who was there. I'm the one who saw it. I'm the one who's recording it. And so you can trust that my account is accurate because I was a first person eyewitness to everything you're reading about. So how do you suppose John decided? How did he select what personal experiences from his time with Jesus to include in the gospel? I'll leave you off the hook because he tells us. John was more concerned with theology than history in his gospel. He wasn't primarily concerned with giving you a story of Jesus that followed a timeline. This happened first, then this happened, then that happened, and ultimately this happened. He's not most concerned with dates and times and history. He's not saying that's not most important. He probably trusted um, that the Holy Spirit was probably moving other men to be able to write things that were more concerned about giving us history. He was more concerned about theology in a more plain language. He tells us, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, here's, he tells you how he decided what to keep in here. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, meaning the things that he wrote down, but this gospel, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life by the power of his name. You see, he's more concerned with who Jesus was than what Jesus did. That's John's mentality. In other words, he's not thinking about filling this book with every possible thing, every sign he saw Jesus do. Think about it. He records, I think John only records four miracles of Jesus. Think of some of the stuff Jesus did. And how fascinating it is for us to read today. He, he turned water into wine. He miraculously multiplied food. 
He raised people from the dead. He unstopped deaf ears. He opened blind eyes. He made leprosy, flesh-eating bacteria disappear. And yet, three to six decades later, when John is reflecting back on his three years with Jesus and he's writing this down, his priority is not giving you the full scope of all of Jesus' signs. That wasn't what ultimately changed John's life. What changed John's life was understanding Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and that by believing him, John had life, John had power, and that if you'll believe in him, the same thing will happen for you. So he makes a choice to say, I'm going to curate the stories and the experiences from Jesus' life that will tell you who he is, and that's more important than what he did. And so with that in mind, what do you think John was hoping would happen in your heart at 9.39 on May the 2nd, 2021, when he wrote this down, probably around 60, somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D., almost 2,000 years ago? What do you think he was hoping you would experience? He's hoping that as we open up these stories and we study these things and we read his gospel, that you will be confronted with a man who is not just a man, but he is the promised Messiah, that he is indeed the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, your life will change. You'll be different. That you'll be hungry for righteousness. That you'll be passionate about telling people about Jesus. That there will be a change in the way that you approach marriage. The way you approach parenting. The way you approach your enemies. The way you approach your friends. The way you approach your finances. That there will be a peace in your life because your eternal, your eternal fate is settled in Jesus. And there will be an urgency in your heart for other people to know him. That's what he's hoping will be accomplished every time you read the words he wrote on this page. Because that's what happened in John's life. And what he's saying is, here's how I got to that place. Let me give you those stories. And would it surprise you then with all that in mind to know that John takes 25% of his gospel and devotes it to one conversation? Of the three and a half years he spends with Jesus and out of everything that he sees, out of every lesson, out of every interaction, out of every miracle, John says, I'm going to take 25% of this gospel and devote it to one single solitary conversation. What does that tell you about this conversation? It tells you it had supreme impact in John's life. That 30, 40, 50 years later, he still thinks back in incredible detail. Could you write five chapters of any conversation that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago for some of you? It's hard to remember what we had for breakfast three days ago. What the Holy Spirit brings to his remembrance is specific conversation that covers a period of roughly seven hours on Thursday, April 6, 30 AD in the city of Jerusalem. It's a single conversation that happened over dinner. It was a dinner conversation between Jesus and at first 12 and then 11 of his disciples. It happens on the evening prior to his arrest his trial, and his crucifixion. It was closed to the public. It's one of these rare conversations that's recorded that wasn't in front of everybody. In fact, at this point, when this conversation takes place, Jesus' public ministry is done. They had already written him off. 
his conversation spans John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Four chapters. And if you include, he prays at the end of it, and that's a whole chapter. If you include the whole thing, it's five of the 21 chapters of John, one conversation. We're not able to look at the whole conversation today. We'll just look at a little tiny slice of it. I told you it happened over dinner. It happened over the Passover meal, we believe. And the disciples were expecting a conversation. Conversations were part of Passover. Every year, the Jews celebrated Passover. And at every Passover, the meal lasted from sundown until usually right around midnight. They expected an evening of relaxed conversation, of reflection, of joy, a celebration of the goodness of God. That's what they were expecting. They went into this expecting it was going to be Passover like it was every year. That's not what they got, though. That's not the conversation they got. They got a conversation filled with dire predictions about their future. And instead of walking away relaxed and joyful, if you read this entire conversation, John remembers how they felt, and he writes it in there. They were shocked. They were agitated. They were bewildered. They were confused. They were stressed. They were anxious. And that's how they leave this conversation. For those of us who are unfamiliar maybe with the conversation and, and refresh the memory of those among us who have studied it before, let me just give you, I think, the big idea of what Jesus is trying to get across to us today, and then we'll just draw out a couple things. Um, we're going to study this more in detail over the next few weeks, but the big idea is this. I think this is what Jesus was trying to get across to us from this conversation. This is what we wanted to get today. Although Jesus is no longer present in the body, he's absolutely present in the Spirit. Even though Jesus is not physically walking the earth today, even though you and I can't go to Galilee and pack into an auditorium today and hear him teach, even though you and I can't go to a miracle service and bring our most dire physical needs to him and ask him to physically touch us, even though we can't see him in person to see he was not a white European male, even though we can't draw with accuracy portraits of who he is from firsthand experience. He's not present in body any longer. He is absolutely present in spirit. He has not left them alone. He has not left us alone. So it, I tried to go through those five chapters and then two paragraphs summarize, paraphrase, what Jesus was saying to his disciples. So I'm going to read what I wrote. I want you to just imagine this. This is the condensed, distilled cliff notes. Some of you don't even know what that is. I do. Um, that says a lot about my education right there. Um, this is the condensed version of what Jesus said. And if you would read through this story, I think this would, this would come out for you. But here's a conversation. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the Messiah. Keep in mind now he's being very direct. He's not speaking in allegories. He's being very plain. I am the Messiah. God is my father. I'm God's son. It's time for me to leave you and return to my father. And you can't come with me now. But later, I'll return and I'll bring you to where we are. The next few days will be catastrophic for the 12 of you. One of you will betray me. Peter, you'll deny you even know me three times. And the rest of you, you'll scatter and desert me. I will die. 
But then you'll see me again for a short period of time before I return to my father. I'm telling you all of this beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe I'm the Messiah. I'm not disbanding you just because I'm going to my father. On the contrary, I'm getting you ready to send you out to continue the work of my kingdom. And anyone who believes in me will be able to do the same works I've done and even greater works. I know what you're thinking. If you leave us, master, how can we do the works we've seen you do, let alone anything greater, if you just leave us by ourselves? Listen, peace. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. When I leave... And only after I've returned to my father, then I will ask him to send you another advocate, another guide, another teacher, just like me. His name is the Holy Spirit. He will be to you and to every believer in history, everything I've been to the 12 of you. Later on, you'll testify in retrospect that it was to your absolute benefit that I returned to my father once you've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. I can sense that you're terrified, anxious, and confused. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, I'm giving you the gift of my peace. Remember that leaders are servants, and remember to love one another like I've loved you. That's the substance of the conversation John devotes 25% of his gospel to. In fact, if you go and read 1 John, which he writes probably two decades after the gospel of John, you can see almost every ingredient of this conversation is the body of his whole first John chapter. First John is known as kind of the love letter because he keeps saying, love each other, love each other, love each other. He remember, well, where did he get that idea? Jesus says, the most important thing I can tell you is love each other. This conversation has a profound impact on John later. But that night, the disciples kept, ra- Thomas raises his hand, Jesus, I have no, I love you. I have no idea what any of that means. His thought bubble is like a constant question mark. I love him. Everybody else is probably like, they have no idea what Jesus is saying, but they're going to pretend. They're like, oh yeah, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Thomas is like, master, I have no idea what any of that means. When you say you're going away and then you're coming back and then you're going away and then you're coming back and taking us there, what does that mean? Just, you know, one of them says, you know, Jesus, I know you're saying you're God and he's in you and you're in him. Tell you what, just show us your father, then we'll all be satisfied. Jesus seems like he's speaking plainly because we have the benefit of 2,000 years of understanding how this story panned out. They are anxious. This is called adult separation anxiety, okay? He's saying, I'm going away, and they're completely terrified. Do you know why? What was Jesus to them for three and a half years? Everything. He was their provider. How did they eat? He provided He was their shelter. He was their guide. They didn't have to get up any day and say, hmm, I wonder what we should do today. He told them. I wonder what this means. He told them, where should we walk? What route should we get there? They didn't have ways. They didn't have Apple car map. They didn't have any of these things. Jesus took them. He changed the weather when it wasn't suitable for crying out loud. If they ran out of food, he took what they had and multiplied it. He was everything. Think about what they left to follow. We're, we're critical of them. What did they give up to follow Jesus versus what did you have to give up? They left their job in the middle of the day to follow him with no contract. You wouldn't do that. Come on, we wouldn't do that. He was there everything, and now he's saying, I'm going away. So they're terrified. What does life look like now for them? They had no idea what it was like to live with. They're thinking, we're going to have to live without him. 
And yet Jesus is calm and composed. They're freaking out. And he's, why is he calm and composed? Because you don't have to be stressed when you see everything. You can't be anxious in heaven. The only reason we get anxious is because we don't know how something's going to turn out and we can't control it. That's why we get stressed. That's why there's no stress in heaven. He sees the beginning from the end. He knows the end of the movie. That's why once you've watched the movie the 20th time and you sit next to someone who's watching it the first time, their reaction is different than yours. They don't know what's going to happen next. You do. That's why you're not stressed. Jesus has seen it all. And he says, I'm not leaving you alone like you think I am, but they can't get past it. And then they're saying, and he's telling us that we've got to keep working. We've got to continue his work, and it's going to even be greater, and he's leaving. He is increasing his expectations and depleting our resources. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. When I go to heaven, and only when I get there, I'm going to send you somebody. Not something, I'm going to send you someone. And here's the analogy. You go back to your SATs. This will be next week's message. As Jesus was to the 12, so the Holy Spirit is to me. And if you'll ever let that sink in, it will change your life more than anything else I could ever say. Well, I'm in a disadvantage. I didn't get the firsthand experience of the disciples. That's false, according to Jesus. You are better advantaged because everything he was to them, the Holy Spirit is to you. You just don't treat him like the disciples treated Jesus when he was in the flesh. He meant you not to be, even to be on an equal level, but to be advantaged through the Holy Spirit. And I'm almost out of time, which is okay. So he's sending them another. The Holy Spirit is our, here's a Greek word for you, Holy Spirit's our paraclete, not parasite. Paraclete, P-A-R-A, paralegal, paraprofessional, paraclete, to come alongside, kletos, to walk. The Holy Spirit is our, the word Jesus uses here is, I will send you the parakletos. The Holy Spirit is sent by God himself to walk alongside us. The word literally means called to or called beside another to aid him. Up until this point, Jesus was their parakletos. He says, I'm sending you another, you know, our word, you know, sometimes your Bible might say advocate, your Bible might say comforter. I gave you the footnote up there. He actually sends you another parakletos. Let me read to you. Let me zoom in on these few sentences. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18 and 24 through 26. Here's the part of the conversation, not paraphrase. Here's exactly what he says. I will ask the father. He will give you another advocate. That's the word paraclete or parakletos who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate, Parakletos, as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He'll teach you everything, remind you of everything that I've told you. He says, I'm going to send you another there's two Greek words for another, heteros and alos. One means another of a different kind. That's heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros is like this. If I go, some of you remember what compact discs or CDs used to be? 
If I go to the record store and I buy a CD and I bring it home and I listen to it and I say, I hated that album. I have to go get another album. I'm not talking about getting another of the same CD and listening to it all over again. I'm talking about, I'm going to go get another CD, but it's going to be of a different artist or a different band. That means heteros, another of a different kind. On the other hand, if I go to the record store and I buy a CD and I say, man, this is a great album, and you listen to it with me and you say, oh, that is great. I say, here, take mine. I'll go get myself another one of that album. That's alos, another of the same kind. Jesus says, I'm sending you an alos, another of the same kind. He's saying the Holy Spirit, he, what he's saying is, I was the first parakletos sent by God to your side, you 11, but I'm here physically. And how many people can I be alongside them all the time? I can't even be alongside you all the time. I'm with you a lot of the time, but not all of the time. That's the limitations of me taking on a physical incarnational model. Wouldn't it be better if the same me you get most of the time, everybody could have all of the time? So I have to go away physically and send another of the same kind, advocate, guide, encourager, comforter, teacher, who will be in you and in all believers simultaneously, all the time, everywhere throughout history. And all they can see is what they're losing. They're not seeing what they're getting. Can you please, for the love of everything sacred, see what you have gotten? If Jesus came to you in the flesh, you would probably treat him with more respect, more attention, more reverence than the Jesus you received in your spirit. And yet Jesus' intention and what revolutionized John's life and why he devotes 25% of his gospel to this, he wants every believer to know you can have everything he had in a, in a physical, personal, eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball relationship with Jesus and more through the Holy Spirit. And it is to our great benefit and our advantage to have him, to know him, to listen to him, to welcome him, to love him, to let him guide and steer and advocate for us. I'll give you the, you don't have notes. I'll just give you these three without preaching them. I can come back to this next week. Jesus thought that it would be an advantage. I'm skipping a lot here. I realize this might not be sufficient for what you want today, but it's enough to give you some homework. What advantages was Jesus talking about, about the Holy Spirit? What would be different? Number one, he will always be with us. He will never leave us. Jesus says this, I'll send you another who will always be with you. He won't have to return to the Father. He'll always be with you. You understand that even when Jesus was there physically, he was with them most of the time, but not all the time. There's times he, they got in the boat that Jesus wasn't in, right? There was times Jesus went off into the mountain to pray, to pray while they were sleeping. He says, the Holy Spirit will always be with you. You will never be disconnected from my Father. When Jesus went away physically, he sent a spiritual advocate, guide, counselor, that can't just be around you. You didn't take in, when you got saved, you didn't take in the physical body of Jesus. You took in his spiritual reality because that can be within you, not just upon you. Number two, he will be everything to us that Jesus was to the 12. I wish I could preach that the whole way down. I can't. I'll pick that up next week. Number three, this one still, I don't 
get this one the whole way. He will author a phase of world history in which those who believe in Jesus will do greater things than what Jesus did. Let me read to you. I didn't give this to them to put on the screen. Let me just read to you verse 12, 13, and 14 from chapter 14 where Jesus breaks this down. He says, I, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. He uses the word works, not miracles, just to be very clear, those of us who read some hyper-faith people. Um, he says, same works, and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Have those promises ever thrown you for a loop? Have you ever heard anybody take off on this? Ask him for anything in his name, and he'll do it, almost like it's a magical phrase. You can tack on like abracadabra. You can tack it on to any request, and that obligates Jesus to be like your servant, like he's a genie in the bottle, and if you say the right abracadabra phrase in his name, that he has to give you wealth, he has to give you healing, he has to give you breakthroughs. That puts everything in your court that says if you come up with the right thing, you can manipulate Jesus into doing what you want. That's not what he's talking about at all. Remember, John's not emphasizing miracles. He's emphasizing the character and the nature of Jesus. What he's saying is this. How can you top the miracles Jesus did? Raising from the dead, what tops that? Nothing. And nothing that tops that. He's not talking about a qualitative difference in works. The work of the kingdom was not to do miracles. The work of the kingdom was to expand the kingdom by preaching the gospel and helping sinners come to repentance and get into heavens. Miracles are cool. Miracles are awesome. Colds getting healed, allergies getting healed, you know, wombs being opened, uh, deaf ears being, they're cool. They're awesome. We give thanks to God for those. They're signs, but the greatest miracle is a sinner going to heaven. That's the greatest miracle. And what Jesus is saying is that with me unleashed in all of you, the, the quantitative work will increase and you will see greater things. And the, there will be, a, when I go to heaven, what he's saying is that will signal the beginning of a phase of history in which through my spirit, I will unleash all of my followers to expand the work of the kingdom in conversions and in preaching the gospel. And what happened in Jesus's ministry? How many converts did he make? At tops, 500, maybe 120. Tops. Ten days after he leaves, one of those followers, probably the most famous failure out of all of them, gets up and gives a message and 3,000 people get saved. Greater things. Not because of miracles. Didn't do any miracles, didn't have a healing convention, just got up and told the story under the power of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people who previously were out there shouting for Jesus to be crucified say, okay, he's my Messiah. Does that mean the disciples were better than Jesus? No, it means Jesus' word is true, that when he sends the Holy Spirit, if we'll receive him, it will give us power and courage and boldness and an extra something that helps us accomplish the work in greater measure than what Jesus could do when it was just him in an incarnational body, one person, one place, one time. So what do I want you to do with this today? If you're a Christian, I want you to honor the Holy Spirit as if it was Jesus himself. I want you to start reverencing the Holy Spirit in you. If it was Jesus sitting next to you this morning in the flesh, oh, the reverence, the respect, you'd hang on his every word. 
You wouldn't want him to go out of your sight. We think differently. We treat people differently. Honor the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't ignore Jesus if he was here in the flesh. I know you. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. We wouldn't ignore him. Why do we ignore the Holy Spirit inside of us? Don't shut him out. Listen to him. Get to know him. Sense him. Welcome him. Speak to him. Ask him. Ask him to teach you about Jesus. He knows him. Ask him to bring into your memory things that you've studied from the Bible and use it. Ask him to give you peace. Ask him to give you power. Ask him for guidance. He is your all access to the mind of Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Ask him to guide you in your decisions, encourage you in your weaknesses. If you don't know Jesus, what do I want you to do? If you're ever going to be saved, the Holy Spirit's absolutely essential to you. I want to tell you, unless you're born again, unless you choose to leave your past, unless you leave that behind and follow Jesus, you'll never see heaven and you won't enter it. Without the Holy Spirit, we're dead. We can never understand what Jesus did for us unless the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and a heart to understand it. So be mindful of the Holy Spirit this morning. Don't ignore him because he's fighting for your very soul. If he's ever convicted you of your sin, if he's ever made you feel like you need to be saved, if he's ever made you feel like you need to be forgiven, don't harden your heart to him. Choose today to believe in Jesus. Receive the free gift of salvation and receive the deposit of his spirit deep into the, deep into the innermost part of your body, your soul, and your spirit. Keith, team, will you come? Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, we repent for ignoring you through your Holy Spirit. We repent for taking so casually what costs so much. Will you please spark and stir your Holy Spirit inside of the believers in this room this morning with an appetite to simply come to the table and know you better for more, just for more of you. And for anyone who's here today within the sound of my voice who's not had that experience of putting their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you yet. But he can if you choose today to bring your simple faith and your simple repentance to Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, can I invite you to pray a prayer of confession to him that simply says, Jesus, I believe in you, that you're God's son, the Messiah, you lived a sinless life. You died on the cross in my place. You rose from the dead. You're alive today. I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved. So I put my faith in you, Jesus, and I turn away from living my own life. Come live inside of me. Holy Spirit, I welcome you into me to be everything to me that, Jesus, you were to the twelve, to be my guide, my leader, my teacher, my advocate, my comforter, my encourager, my empowerer. I choose to lay down leading my own life and I surrender to the Lord of Lords, to the King of Kings. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's a we hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know.
If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.